Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today on Something You Should Know, effective techniques powerful people use to exhibit their power. Then, how your thoughts can affect your health and well-being, for better or worse. When you're not feeling good, no matter whether it's psychological, physical, whatever, that all we have are moments, and you can make the moment matter. And if you make this moment matter and the next moment matter, then at the end of the day, you've had a meaningful day. Also, if something goes without saying, then why do people say it goes without saying? And doesn't it seem like there are a lot more wildfires today than before? That's not necessarily true. If we look at a chart of how many fires per year over time, it's not drastically more now. What we're seeing is more severe fires, fires burning more acreage. A lot of those fires is human-caused starts. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. There is a book out, it's been out for a while, called The 48 Laws of Personal Power, and it's by Robert Greene, who has been a guest on this podcast in the past. And it's a really great book, and in it, he offers some really good advice for people who want to appear more powerful. Here's some of that advice. Always say less than necessary. It gives people the impression that you don't need to gab about things because you know them so well. It's chatty people who appear insecure. Act like a king to be treated like a king. If someone asks you how much you want to be paid, aim high. If you show that you think you're valuable, other people will think so too. 
Don't argue. Powerful people know that you almost never change someone else's opinion with your words. So, don't try. Stay above it all. And never outshine your master. Make your boss or the person above you think they are bright, witty, and charming. If they feel threatened by you, they will work to sabotage your power. And that is something you should know. I'm sure you've heard people talk about the mind-body connection, how your thoughts can impact your health and well-being. Well, this conversation is sort of about that, but much more. I think you will find this really fascinating. Meet Ellen Langer. She is, well, she's kind of a legend in her field. She is the very first woman professor tenured at Harvard. She is considered to be the mother of mindfulness, and she has a book out called The Mindful Body, Thinking Our Way to Chronic Health. Hi, Ellen. Pleasure to have you on. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. So you're the mother of mindfulness, and you have a really interesting TED Talk in which you say, most of us are not mindful. In fact, most of us are mindless most of the time. So let's start there. What do you mean by that? Well, mindlessness people have a great sense of it's when you're acting like a robot. Um, you know, the uh, we have expressions like the lights on, nobody's home. And 40 years of research has shown, sadly, most of us are just not home. Now, to be home, so to speak, to be mindful is so easy with consequences that are so extraordinary, it almost defies belief how easy it is. All you need to do is notice new things. As you notice new things, the neurons are firing, and um, all of this research shows that it's literally and figuratively enlivening. Now, we don't notice things because we think we know, and that's the major problem. Everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives, so we can't know for sure. So I often, Mike, when I'm giving lectures, I'll ask people, so how much is one in one? Two. So answer, how much? Two, that's what most people assume, but not always. If you're adding one wad of chewing gum plus one wad of chewing gum, one plus one is one. You're adding one pile of laundry plus one pile of laundry, one plus one is one. One cloud plus one cloud, one plus one is one, and so on. So in the real world, one plus one may not equal two as or more often as it does. So we have to pay attention. And when we recognize that we don't know, we naturally attend. And that's the essence of our being mindful. So give me some like real life examples, not necessarily the chewing gum and the clouds, but, but of, yeah. of how, we well, miss, how we miss things, how we're not seeing things. Uh, like, like, for example, what? As soon as we think we know, we don't pay attention. Uh, we don't pay attention. If you thought you knew what I was going to say next, why bother listening? And it turns out that um, all of this data show that when you're actively noticing new things, people find you more attractive. When you're actively noticing new things, uh, people see you as charismatic. You're likely to be certainly more innovative. So it's so easy to do. Just know you don't know, then you tune in. And then what you're going to do is be able to notice things that um, otherwise you'd be blind to and avoid dangers before they arise. Okay, so I, I get the concept of mindfulness now, but so tie it into health. That's the, the topic of the book. And so what does this have to do with health? We have 
very um, uh, limiting notions regarding our health and our abilities, what we're capable of, all sorts of possibilities because of our mindlessness. People tell us this is, and whatever follows from that, we assume has to be. And uh, we have uh, evidence, some of it is quite extraordinary, I think, and the first test of this we did was called the counterclockwise study, where we retrofitted a retreat to 20 years earlier and had elderly men live there for a week as if they were their younger selves. So their minds are back in the past. As a result, their vision improved, their hearing improved, their memory improved, um, and they looked noticeably younger in a period of time less than a week and without any medical intervention. Well, that is pretty extraordinary. And talk about that study where you help people or you make people heal faster. We inflict a wound. Now, you know, it would have been more compelling if it could be a big wound, but we don't want to hurt people. So it's a minor wound. People are in front of a clock. For a third of the people, the clock is going twice as fast as real time. For a third of the people, the clock is going half as fast as real time. And for a third of the people, it's real time. What we found is that the wound heals based on clock time. That means whatever you perceive to be the time. We have people in a sleep lab. They wake up, they think they got two hours more sleep, two hours fewer, or the amount of sleep they actually got. And again, biological and cognitive functions follow our perceptions, our beliefs. So, and we have many, many studies um, where what we find is that we have enormous control over our health. Wait, 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 that, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. So you're wait, saying wait, wait, you're, wait. <laughs> you're saying that if a person has a cut on their arm that would take what well, normally a week to heal, and you speed up the clock so this person's time perception is messed up, and time is going by faster, the cut will heal faster based on the person's perception of time? Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Let me, let me tell you how I got started in this, all the work on mind-body unity. So I was uh, married uh, when I was very young, and I went to Paris on my honeymoon, and I was trying to be very, very sophisticated. And I ordered this mixed grill in this restaurant, and on the plate was a pancreas. I didn't think I could eat it, but it felt like a challenge. I had to be able to because now I was a grown woman. So I asked my then husband which of these items was the pancreas. He pointed to one. I ate everything. Um, I'm a big eater, a good eater. Now was the moment of truth. Could I eat that pancreas? I start eating it and I'm literally, literally, not just figuratively, literally getting sick. He then starts to laugh. I asked him, what are you laughing about? He said, that's chicken. You ate the pancreas ages ago. <laughs> but by my believing that this was pancreas, you know, I got myself sick. Explain what you mean by the borderline effect. I thought this was really interesting. You know that for every disease, there's a diagnosis where some people fall just below it and others fall right above it. Those right above are, are given, um, are told they have the disease. But if you look at the numbers, there's no meaningful difference. Let's just say for argument's sake, Mike, you and I took um, an IQ test and you get 70 and I get 69. 69 is the cutoff point. And that would mean that I'm 
cognitively deficient, what we used to call retarded. Now, once I'm given that diagnosis and you're told you're normal, if we tune back in in six months, there'd be a very real difference between us. So we did this with diabetes, with cancer, where the difference, that tiny difference that statistically speaking is not different at all, psychologically made an enormous difference where people end up um, uh, manifesting the disease. We have, if we go back to um, the mind-body-unity uh, studies, one that we did that was great fun was with chambermaids. And these chambermaids um, didn't think they got exercise because they saw exercise as what you do after work, and they were just too tired after work. And we took them, and we taught half of them that their work is exercise. That's all we did was change their mindset. They were told that working on a machine at the gym uh, is like making a bed and so on. So half of them are persuaded their work is exercise. When the study was over, those people who did nothing more but change their mindset, they lost weight, there was a change in waist to hip ratio, body mass index, and their blood pressure came down. So we have a host of these sorts of studies showing that, my goodness, uh, we have enormous control. We have control over our happiness. Once we recognize that outcomes are not good or bad, they don't come pre-labeled, it's the way we see them. I mean, let's say, for example, Mike, you and I go out to lunch and the food is wonderful. Wonderful. We've had a good meal. We go out to lunch and the food is awful. Wonderful. I won't eat as much and that'll be good for my waistline. No matter what happens, there's a way of understanding it differently. My guest is Ellen Langer. She is a Harvard professor, considered to be the mother of mindfulness, and she's author of a book called The Mindful Body, Thinking Our Way to Chronic Health. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So, Ellen, I get what you're saying about mindful, having a mindful attitude and all, but it's hard to look at something in this positive way if objectively that something isn't positive. It's just not. If you were told you've got, you know, six months to live, hard to put a positive spin on that. And also hard to think, at least for me to think, that even if you were somehow able to put a positive spin on that, that your mind is going to somehow do something to the disease that's going to kill you in six months. When people are given, have chronic diseases, excuse me, they presume that the disease is going to get stay the same or get worse. Nothing stays the same and nothing moves only in one direction. There are little moments where you're a little better little moments where you're a little worse. So what we did was to call people who have 
big diseases. We have Parkinson's stroke, multiple sclerosis, chronic pain, and others. Um, and we call them periodically and we say, how are you now? And is it better or worse than before? And why? Well, asking the why question does three things. The first, by trying to find why now am I a little better than before, you're going to be mindful. And that mindfulness, as I said before, in other research, the more mindful we make people, the longer they live, the quicker they heal. Second, by seeing that, gee, sometimes you're better, you instantly become more hopeful and feel better. And third, I think you're more likely to find a solution if you're looking for one. So we did these across all these different diseases and had wonderful results, very exciting. And you might say, well, but it's still, how can people do this for themselves? Well, most of us have smartphones. And you set the smartphone for an hour later. And then ask yourself the question, how am I now? Is it better or worse than before? And why? Then set it for an hour and 15 minutes, three hours. Keep doing this in the course of um, a week. And... Uh, the results that we found are very, very promising. It's also true that we do this with people. We hold them still. You know, we think this person is nasty, that person is um, angry, this person is lazy, um, as if they're lazy, nasty, angry all the time. So we respond to them as if they are those ways. But nobody is anything all the time. And when we, when we do this and we see when they are and when they aren't, our relationships improve, among other things. You know, most peop many people wear glasses. And we've done a lot of work with vision. Let me tell you about a fun study. I, you know, I'm strange, I, I admit it. That when I go to the doctor and they give me the Snelling eye chart, the first thing I notice is, gee, uh, since they're going from large letters to small letters, I'm, I'm supposed to expect that soon I won't be able to see. And what does that expectation do? So what we did to test this was we reversed the eye chart. So now the letters go from small to large. So you know soon you're going to be able to see. And simply by reversing the order and changing the expectation, people could see what they couldn't see before. Now, our vision varies in the course of the day. Most people hold it still. They wake up and, if they're, you know, and, and they put their glasses on. Now, if your vision is very bad, uh, perhaps you need them. But for most of us, uh, we don't need them all the time, but we're teaching our eyes to need the glasses. Almost like taking a laxative. You know, after a while, um, you become dependent on it. And so if we recognize, when do I need the glasses? When don't I? You might see that, gee, three o'clock in the afternoon, you don't see as well. Well, then you have alternatives. Maybe you need an energy bar or just a candy bar. Maybe you need a nap or you can put your glasses on. And so what, ha what happens, do you think, when you do a, a study and you, you get people to do any one of the things you've just described, and you say that, you know, some people get better and some people don't. So what's the difference? Why do, it doesn't work 100% of the time with 100% of the people. Right, so the people right. it doesn't work with, why doesn't it work with them? Well, that's a very good question, and I can't be sure. But I believe that the stronger your mindset, you know, when I was younger, uh, many years ago, the um, notion about cancer was cancer was a killer. 
And if you believed, if you took in that mindset, cancer is a killer, it's going to be very hard down the road to get you to believe that, well, maybe not. It's not a killer for everybody and so on. Um, so I guess the answer is the stronger the mindset, the harder it is to, to undo it. But is there any um, sense of why, especially something like cancer, where your belief can impact your outcome, how does it impact your outcome? If, if, what, how does your mind talk to the cancer and say, stop it? Let, let me use a simpler example. So let's, uh, so I'm 76 years old. If I took in the mindset when I was younger that when you get old, you simply fall apart and my wrist started to hurt, I wouldn't do anything to heal it. I'd say, oh, well, what do you expect? You know, I, I'm no longer young. Um, I'm starting to fall apart. If the same symptoms occurred and you were 25 years old, you would do something about it. So one of the things that happens is that we're out and about taking care of ourselves when we believe change is possible, and we don't do those things that are helpful when uh, we believe it's hopeless. It's also the case that when you believe you have some dread disease, you, you allow yourself to turn off. And that means you're you know, experiencing mindlessness. And I said before that this act of noticing is energy begetting, the neurons are firing, and it's literally enlivening. And so if you shut yourself down because of the expectation that, well, you know, nobody lives forever and your time is up and so on. That can become the self-fulfilling prophecy. You often hear like when somebody lives to be over a hundred and you'll, you'll often hear people say, wow, she's so feisty or he's so feisty. And I wonder if feisty or, or that assertiveness that feisty represents, if there's something to that in terms of health and longevity versus passivity, assertiveness versus passivity. There's no question about it, in my mind at least, you know, that passivity robs us of ourselves. You know, pass passivity usually comes about because we're saying to ourselves, we can't do it. We can never have evidence that we can't do it, anything, whatever the it is. Um, all we can know is what we tried didn't work. And the, a, an interesting thing in that regard is that people think that they want to be expert at everything. And um, I think that that's a mistake. And if you knew that you didn't need to be expert, because most of the time, if you become fully expert, you become mindless. You know, if I got a hole in one, every time I swung a golf club, there'd be no game there. So people have to have a better understanding that the game is uh, to ma uh, mastery, mastering, not having mastered. And that, um, you know, people think they always want to win. Well, if you always want to win, play tic-tac-toe against a four-year-old, assuming you know how to do it, you know. Um, so we really don't want that. We want a challenge. And that that shouldn't change at any point in our lives. We shouldn't expect or even want perfection, because we can either be perfectly mindless or imperfectly mindful. So if you're perfectly mindless, you're not there. And uh, all of this work over 45 years has said that if you're going to do it, be there for it, no matter what the it is you're doing, or don't bother doing it. It would seem difficult if you're sick or you've gotten a bad diagnosis, you, or you just feel bad. 
it seems that it would be difficult to be mindful in the way you're describing it of noticing new things. If you're sick, you're not, you know, don't really want to notice new things. I just want to go to bed. When you're not feeling good, no matter whether it's psychological, physical, whatever, that all we have are moments. And you can make the moment matter. And if you make this moment matter and the next moment matter, then at the end of the day, you've had a meaningful day. The, the most interesting thing I, I, I've, of all of that you've said, and you've said a lot of really interesting things, is how if you speed up time, you speed up healing. That just, I, I just don't, I don't get that. that <laughs> well, let me tell you about an, uh, two other studies that'll blow your mind. And then the uh, chambermaids, now here they just changed their minds and they lost weight. I mean, that's pretty mind-blowing. Another, we have people who have type 2 diabetes. They come into the lab, we take all sorts of measures, and then for reasons that will become clear in a moment, we have computer, and they're playing computer games. And they're told, change the game you're playing about every 15 minutes or so. And that's to ensure they'll look at the clock next to the computer. For a third of the people, the clock is going twice as fast as real time. For a third of the people, the clock is going half as fast as real time. And for a third of the people, it's real time. Blood sugar level follows perceived rather than real time. Well, what a great way to look at health and health challenges, big and small, to look at it through this lens that you've just described, I think gives everybody hope and optimism about their health. I've been speaking with Ellen Langer. She is a professor at Harvard. She is author of the book, The Mindful Body, Thinking Our Way to Chronic Health. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Ellen. It was a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Mike. It was fun. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fire is scary. And we've all seen out-of-control fires on the news in Hawaii, in Canada, and plenty of other places. Many of those places haven't had wildfires before. And it has to make you worry and wonder, why are there so many of these horrible, often deadly fires? And what if one happened near you? Would you know what to do? I mean, I would imagine there were a lot of vacationers on the island of Maui when the Lahaina fire hit. And those people came from areas where they would have never needed to worry about something like that. Yet there they were, on Maui. This is a topic that's important to everyone. And here to shed some light is Nick Mott. He is a Peabody Award-winning journalist and podcast producer. And he is author of a book called This is Wildfire. How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat. Hi, Nick. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thanks so much for having me. 
So first, help me understand what's going on here, because we're seeing more fires than we used to. We're seeing more fires in places where we never used to see fires before. I mean, I think of Canada as being very green and and, and not a place where wildfires would rage out of control, yet there they are. And it all seems very different than it used to be not that long ago. So what's going on? Well, several things are going on. You know, to back up, we've gotten ourselves in this situation. You're right that fire seems a lot worse than it used to. Um, We are seeing larger wildfires, more severe wildfires, and wildfires that affect people and property a lot more than we used to. And there are three main things causing that. The first one is climate change. You know, things are getting hotter and drier. Our snowpack is melting off earlier. What used to be spring snows is hitting mountains as spring rain and just blasting off snowpack. You know, our night times are warmer, which used to be times when fire could die down more, you get more of a handle on it. So all this is combining to make wildfire worse due to climate. It's also in part why we're seeing this stuff in Canada right now. But two other things are happening too. One is a century of putting out all the fires. So back in 1910, there was this enormous fire that went by the Big Burn, a lot of people call it, great book by Tim Egan about it. Um, It burnt a series of fires, actually, mostly started by railroads uh, that burnt about 3 million acres in the West. It was this big sort of national wake-up call that led the country to have this sort of war path against wildfire. We there Shortly after that, we instituted something called the 10 a.m. policy, which meant that we wanted every single wildfire out by 10 a.m. the next day. You know, wildfire was an enemy, and we mobilized our forces very much like in a military-like manner to combat it. And the third thing is we built more and more homes in areas that are prone to wildfire. And the other thing to remember about all this is wildfire is natural. So if we look back at the historical record, we would see smoky skies at this time of the year very often. We would see some of these forests burning. We would, so if we were to like cut open a tree, look at the rings, you can see when fires burned and you can see in a lot of forests, especially Ponderosa pine forests in the West and Southwest, you know, there were roughly 10 to 30 year fire intervals, but we've severed that. So if you look back, those intervals are gone for the last hundred years. That means there's a lot of more. Lot, that means there's a lot more growth in forests. There's a, and that growth is ready just to go up. So like there's all this little stuff, what folks often call ladder fuel, in between the bigger trees that are more fire resilient. So really, all that's combining to create where we're at today. Why are we intentionally building homes in places that are likely to burn? I mean, seems like there's plenty of other places to build homes. Is it because those places? didn't used to be fire danger places and now they are? No, I mean, there's no one answer to this because some areas are becoming more fire prone due to climate change. But in general, the the there's a couple answers to this. One is people are attracted to the aesthetic beauty of places that are vulnerable to fire. So like trees and the natural world, all this pretty stuff can be really attractive. You know, if you want to retire out to the mountains, it seems great except for fires. Fires can happen. And people aren't aware that there are things you can and should do that you have to do to stay safe from fire. Now, that's sort of at one end of the economic spectrum. At the other is a lot of people are being forced out of city centers due to high prices. And, you know, there's there's a saying, drive till you can afford in a lot of places. And so in many other areas, people are going farther out on the urban fringes to where things are more vulnerable to fire just because that's the only place where property is affordable. 
And, you know, there's a really awful acronym for, for these areas. It's called the WUI, the Wildland Urban Interface. It's kind of where um, trees and other flammable stuff and houses intermingle. And this area, this like land type is growing faster than any other land type in the country, both for these two forces, because it's pretty and because people are being forced to there because of skyrocketing prices elsewhere. Aren't fires, forest fires, wildfires, just kind of part of the, there's a cycle of, you know, everything burns and then it comes back and, and that's the way it's been for all eternity. In part, that's true. You know, that's something that we need to grasp more as a society, that not all wildfire is bad. But the complexity with wildfire we're seeing today is that it's not all just one thing. So there are some good fires that happen that are this ecologically natural thing that we need. And there are other things that are so-called mega fires, fires burning over 100,000 acres, over a million acres that are burning so hot nothing can grow back. There's almost nothing we can do in terms of our fire firefighting apparatus to stop the spread of those fires. So we're seeing both fires that we need and fires that are enormously destructive. And it's, it's you know, it's important for the public to grasp that there's not just like one thing going on with fire, that fire's neither always bad nor always good. How do these fires tend to start? So two main ways we can talk about. One are natural starts. So from lightning, that stuff that would have happened historically for a really long time and happens today all the time when these dry thunderstorms come in across the West. Like right now I'm in Montana, fire season starting in large part because of lightning. Um, but the other big driver of fires are human caused starts. And that can be anything from campfires left unattended to fireworks on the 4th of July, to a car backfiring, to, in, uh, you know, a kid with a blade with a blade of grass and a lighter. It can be any number of things. And what we find, but and what the statistics show is that human caused fire starts are more destructive than lightning caused fire starts. I think the perception is that there are a lot more fires than there used to be. Is that true? That's not necessarily true. We're seeing if we look at sort of a, a, a chart of how many fires per year over time, it's not drastically more now. What we're seeing is more severe fires, fires burning more acreage. And a lot of those fires that we see burning that massive amount of acreage and causing a lot of human damage is human-caused starts. And why are these fires more severe than they used to be? It's a couple of those factors I mentioned before. It's things are hotter and drier. And it's that there's more fuel for them to burn in some forest types where there hasn't been fire in a long time. And often it just seems more destructive when there's houses burning. So we have more houses and fire prone areas and it's affecting human property more than it used to. And we just can't get a hand, like we were doing so good at this sort of national agenda of putting out all the fires for a really long time. But because of a changing climate, because of the legacy of that fire suppression and because of all the houses, we just can't do that anymore. The fires are, we have to recognize are something that we're just not dominant over anymore. We have to learn how to live with them at the same time that we combat them too. Without knowing the details, the perception is, you know, fires in Canada, Canada's, you know, green and wet. And why are there fires there? Maui, Lahaina? Uh, it's a tropical climate, it's wet, it rains a lot. So uh, are we seeing fires a lot more in places where we never used to see fires before? You know, one interesting area to look at is in the Arctic. So we can see what some folks call 
zombie fires that burn basically year round in the permafrost and peat out there. That's really wild. And that is certainly climate related and certainly stuff that we did not used to see as fires like above the Arctic Circle. But it, I, I guess what I meant more is like, you know, you don't like New England doesn't have a lot of forest fires. It never has, as I recall, having grown up there. But I mean, is it possible that one day, if it isn't already, that that would be an area that would have forest fires? Or, or is that area pretty safe from forest fires because it rains a lot, it's pretty wet and nothing to worry about? You know, it's prone to fires of a different kind. We have seen some fires, actually, I think, in New Jersey over the last year or two and some other areas up there. What's different is that it is much more wet than the West. So we could kind of separate the country into two by the 100th meridian, which is just the line that separates the middle of the country. And John Wesley Powell d- described this line, you know, a long time ago. And this is a line to that separates the very arid West from the relatively wet East. So if we talk about that, that just means that fires are easier to start and will burn longer out West than they will out East. That said, There are often huge destructive fires in areas like the Great Lakes. There can be fire, like grass fires all over the Great Plains. There, you know, Florida has a long history with fire and the South is actually doing a whole lot to bring back prescribed fire counterintuitively. Like a controlled burn to burn it before it gets out of hand. Yeah, controlled burn to burn it before it gets out of hand to simulate what actually would have happened naturally before there were roads and people putting out all the fires and to enhance habitat for wildlife. You know, one of the things that we can do to get ourselves out of the fire problem more broadly is learn from what's going on in the South and get more prescribed fire on the ground everywhere because forests need it. You know, that's been a goal of the Forest Service for a long time is to have more prescribed fire. But it's really hard to do with the resources they have with the environmental studies that have to be done. And also, you know, if we were to look at the Calf Canyon and Hermit's Peak fire in New Mexico last year, they were the biggest in the state's history and they were started by prescribed fires. So that stuff just gives prescribed fires a bad rap, even though 99.9% of them go as planned. So often when you see footage on TV of a big fire, there's always that guy. And he's out on the roof of his house with his garden hose. And, and, and either he knows something I don't know, or maybe he doesn't understand the severity of these fires and how little he's going to accomplish and how dangerous it is to get up on the roof of your house in a fire with a garden hose. Yeah, I think that person misunderstands how to prepare for a fire. You know, I grew up in Kansas and there always used to be the same kind of folks or like my dad, for example, you know, when there was a tornado alarm, all the men in the neighborhood would go out and sit on the porch and wait for it and watch for it. And uh, I think it's kind of the same deal with wildfires sometime, but you know, a a hose on your roof isn't going to do a thing when it comes to a wildfire. What researchers now know is that wildfires don't set houses ablaze by like this big flame front coming into the neighborhood and going up against a house and starting it, what actually happens is the embers off the fire, sometimes miles away, float onto the house. They'll get into like soffits and eaves or into the trees that are next to your house. And so there's a lot you can do as a homeowner to be safe and prepare for a fire. That means like getting rid of trees that are touching your roof. That means thinning out a lot of trees in your lawn, getting rid of other flammable stuff that's on your house, including um, like a wood roof can 
is an expensive fix, but something that can be really dangerous when it comes to those floating embers. There's some really great resources online available for folks if they're interested um, on what's called firewise practices for, for making your homes less vulnerable to wildfire. And that seriously goes a long way. So in terms of fighting fires, has, has there been a lot of advancement in the technology and the methods of fighting fires that it's better than it used to be? Or is it always just, you know, pour water on it or pour stuff on it and try to break the fire? It's less water pouring, but it hasn't changed that much in a long time, except for how things are organized. So the way firefighting works is we have a bunch of, we have fire crews all over the nation, federal, state, county, like local municipalities and private. And those are all mobilized to go to event, to go to big fire events. And what folks are doing, like you'll see the media images of those planes dropping that red stuff on fires or dropping water on fires. And you know that, the jury's kind of out on on how effective that stuff is. Some people just call those things media drops, especially the red stuff you see. But what's really going on is folks are digging what's called fire line. These they're getting rid of fuel in certain areas to create kind of a perimeter around a wildfire that it can't jump over. So when you see, if you like look up a fire near you and you see it's sixty percent contained, that basically means that there's fire line around sixty percent of that fire, and that's not going to cross those lines. Now, when weather conditions are wrong, it can jump fire line, and that's really bad. What we're seeing with increased severity of fire, too, is often folks, you know, where you used to be up, where often in lower intensity fire, you can be up pretty close to the fire trying to contain it in these big mega fires. You're actually often engaged in what's called indirect attack. So you're building fire line farther out to kind of preemptively and and safely, because firefighter safety is a huge thing here be able to you know, slow, the spread, slow or stop the spread of the fire from a distance when it's just too dangerous to be up close. Where I live in California, we've always had what's called fire season, you know, late summer, autumn fire season. And you point out that fire season has now become the whole year long. There is no more fire season. When did that start? You know, I would say over the last 20 odd years, it's hard since it's sort of something that's emerged, it's hard to say exactly it started this year, but we can look at the statistics of how much burns each year. If you look back in like the 1980s, there are a lot of years with only like 1.3, 1.1 million acres burned. And, when, and it kind of stays that way through the 90s. You know, 1999 did have 5 million acres burned. Then you hit the 2000s and things just get so much worse. So the year 2000, you get 7 million acres burned which was a record at the time, 2006, 9.8. You know, you get up to several more years with with not more than 9 million acres burned, 2015, 2017, 2020, all over 10 million acres burned. So we're seeing just more and more acres burned at more times of the year as well, um, and certainly over the last 20 years. What else about this? Because, you know, I have to admit, and, and perhaps it comes out in the conversation here, this is not something I think most people think about that. I don't, I mean, and I live in fire country, but I mean, I know the basics basically to get the hell out. If, if fire's coming, that I'm not going to be the guy on the roof with the garden hose. But what, what else about this do you think people don't really get? You know, two things. I think one is it's easy to forget about fire until it's here. 
Right. We need to be thinking about fire year round, not just when fires are nearby. So that means doing things like talking with your family and friends about an evacuation plan if there is a fire nearby, getting a go bag full of stuff that you need on the go if you have to evacuate in just a few minutes. And that means doing the work on your property that can make it more resilient to fire. Also, we need to understand that not all fire is bad. Like as soon as fire season starts, every fire seems like a tragedy, but a lot of those fires in reality can be things that the ecosystem needs that are paving the way for less severe fires in the future. So we need to understand that one, fires are here, they're not all bad, and two, we can prepare ourselves to live with them when they happen. One thing that, that I think surprises people is how fast these fires move. I know people... And you hear stories about people who were in a fire or, you know, a fire was approaching and it was approaching so fast that they literally got out with the clothes on their back. And I don't think people realize that really does happen. I think you're totally right. And, you know, I think there's something about, sadly, human nature where we're like, oh, this will never happen to us, you know. I feel the same way here and uh, I feel the same way about floods. Last summer, I live, you know, an hour north of Yellowstone and we got hit by the the flooding in the area and we got evacuated. And until then, I was like, oh, no way are we going to get flooded. And it's the same thing with with all kinds of disasters, with all kinds of just risky things. As humans, we're like, I understand this in the abstract, but it's not real to me until it's too late, right? I recently, just in the last few days, got an email, a press release, uh, talking about this uh, policy of using goats to eat up fuel, fire fuel, grass and things that fires would otherwise burn, to have the goats go graze there and eat up all that fuel to help prevent serious fire. Is that a real thing? That stuff that's been going on for for years, yeah. I, uh, you know, I grew up in Kansas, and I, I moved west after college and started doing. You know, I was doing an AmeriCorps job for a while, and uh, it was my first real encounter with wildfire. So I was felling trees and sage grouse habitats to sort of simulate what a wildfire would have done, because all these pine trees, pinyons and junipers, had grown in because of a lack of fire, and it was bad for the birds. So I was cutting down those trees, and I remember one day I was out cutting down the trees and just watched a fire fire start in the distance, watched this plume go up. And, uh, you know, it was the first experience I had with wildfire out in the world. And at the same time, like a little bit later, I learned about goats. I, this was, I was over in the Tahoe area and they were telling me about how they were bringing goats in to get rid of these fuels. And, you know, what, what goats are doing is they're, they eat what's called fine or flashy fuels. They, they, they're eating this grass that could help fire spread across a landscape. And, you know, that, that, helps, but that stuff comes back fast. So they've got to keep, you got to keep those goats there year after year for it to be effective. Well, I like this conversation because you've painted a picture that is more hopeful and optimistic than I would have imagined it would be, that there are things we can do, strategies that will work. It's just a matter of putting them into practice. I've been speaking with Nick Mott. He's a Peabody award-winning journalist, podcast producer, and author of the book, This is Wildfire how to protect yourself, your home, and your community in the age of heat. And there's a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. There are some quirky expressions in the English language that people use. We probably all use some of them at some point, And we probably shouldn't. For example, this goes without saying, and then it's usually followed by the person saying it anyway. I'm not one to complain, but, and that's usually followed with a complaint. 
Let me be perfectly honest. When someone says that, it makes you wonder if they've been lying up till now. According to linguist Paul Yeager, these expressions really get in the way of what you're trying to say and can, in fact, weaken the impact of the point you're trying to make. Another one is it literally, as in, it literally took forever to get here. Well, no, it didn't. And according to Paul Yeager, that makes people sound unintelligent when they use phrases inappropriately like that. And that is something you should know. You know, I often hear conversations people have about, oh, what podcast do you listen to? And I hope if you ever find yourself in that conversation, you'll mention this one. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.